You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you could open it up at Mark chapter 8. Mark and chapter 8. Um, if you've never read the Bible before, we have some Mark's Gospels at the back there. We would encourage you to take one. They are free. Please take them. It is, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we always encourage people who've never read the Bible, start with the book of Mark. We're looking at this book. It is a fast-paced, action-packed book written by Mark, but based upon the testimony of Peter, who was one of the closest of the 12 disciples. And we've called this The Story. The Story. So I find this quite a challenge because the more you look at the story, the more it turns your world upside down. And what we're discovering is, wow, the way we live, golly, it's just totally different. I'm not going to read the whole of Mark chapter 8. I'm going to summarize it. What happens first is Jesus feeds 4,000 people. It's a miracle. It's an amazing sign of the love and the grace of God. What you discover is he'd previously fed 5,000 men, women, and children. Twelve baskets were collected afterwards. We believe that actually that was Jesus feeding physically the Jews. This, many would say, is considered an example of Jesus feeding the Gentiles because there were seven baskets collected afterwards. Seven were the number of nations that the land was had to be cleared by Joshua, but actually it's the sense that Jesus embraces all nations. I wish I had longer to talk about that, but I can't. What happens, though, as a result of this miracle is that the Pharisees and Herod start questioning who Jesus is. So he does an amazing miracle, and then they start questioning, well, who are you, Jesus? I'm quite a lover of the theatre. I know that we have some others that enjoy attending those things up in London. Jesus Christ Superstar, I don't quote it often here, but if ever you have seen Jesus Christ Superstar, you will know that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the words for Herod when he met Jesus as this, Jesus, I am overjoyed to meet you face to face. You've been getting quite a name all around the place. So you are the Christ. You are the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. And it was almost this way of Herod, and we know this in the Bible, Herod wanted to meet Jesus so that he could ask questions. Then the story goes on. Jesus heals a blind man. This man is blind. He cries out to Jesus. Jesus spits on him. And he partly gains his vision. Jesus then puts his hands on the man's eyes once more, and he can see clearly. It's another miracle. On the back of this, we get Peter confessing who Jesus is. In many respects, the miracle reflects what's happening in Peter's life. Peter has only partly understood who Jesus is, but then it's almost like his eyes are becoming clear. Jesus says to him, who do people say that I am? Now, we, we can, we're skipping through this story because there's so much in there. The place that this occurred was Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was known as the territory of worship. It was here that the man Caesar was declared God. 
It was here that Baal had previously been worshipped. It was here that was the center of Pan, the worship of the earth. And it is here that Jesus is declared the Messiah of all the earth. I want to ask you a question. There's a miracle, and Herod and the Pharisees ask questions. There's a miracle, and Peter declares Jesus as Lord. How do you respond to the miracle of Jesus rising from the dead? Are you going to be like a Herod that thinks, as I'm just sitting here to ask lots of questions? I'm not saying that's wrong. Or are you this morning saying, Jesus is my Lord? The five people that are getting baptized have actually said, you know, I've understood something of the miracle of Jesus Christ, and I respond by declaring that he is my Lord, and I want to be baptized. We are going to read some of Mark. So if you've sat there patiently, we're now up to verse 31, and it goes like this. Jesus predicts his death. He, this is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man a title for him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at this, this your word this morning, I pray that our eyes will be opened. I pray that we won't see half-truths. I pray that, like Peter, it's almost like we'll understand something of who you are. Lord, you know we're all on a journey. I pray that you help us all to take another step forward this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a radical message. I'm just going to look at one verse. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Many of us will know the statement that started with L'Oreal, the cosmetic company, because you're worth it. It's been going 40 years this year. Because you're worth it. It has been adapted slightly because I'm worth it. You see, the reality is that we live in a society that we don't want to deny ourselves. I find that fascinating. It's just just a silly little example, I know. But when I'm taking the kids to school on the bus, 
We can all be stood around at the bus stop, but when the bus turns up, suddenly everybody wants to jump to the front. Why? Because it's me first. If we're really honest, we can probably be a little bit like that even at work, isn't it? We're all doing really well, and actually the company's doing great, but I'd like the promotion. This is not a new phenomenon. The disciples were exactly the same. Peter, Peter is the one that we know gave the testimony for this. Peter ends up rebuking Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, and he rebukes him. Why? Because it wasn't quite going Peter's way. He wasn't the only one. The disciples, we can read in the gospel, have an argument. What are they arguing about? Who is the greatest? In fact, we get James and John, two brothers that are following Jesus, who get their mum to go to Jesus and say, look, my boys are really special boys. Could one sit on your right and one sit on your left? That, that's the sort of, that people don't deny themselves. Jim Carrey, you may have heard of him, the Canadian-American actor, says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. I thought it was fascinating, isn't it? It's almost like be as selfish as you can, grab it, but actually once you get there, you look back and you think, do you know what? This doesn't really satisfy. If we're truthful, most of us have not got that rich or that famous yet because we're still chasing something, thinking maybe that will satisfy. We can still get caught up in, is it about me? Yet Jesus says quite clearly, and this is what these five are going to do when they get baptized, they're saying, I deny myself. This is not denying yourself for one day. Some of you might have heard that Christians, they might fast for a day. That means you go without food or coffee for a whole day. Now actually, denying yourself is ceasing to make yourself the object of your life and actions. That's much harder. Many of us could think, well, I could sacrifice something maybe for a day. I don't know, it's funny, I was with a, a group uh, last week actually, and everyone even there were chatting about fasting, and one person said, you know, I've never done it. I just don't think I could do it. I don't think I could possibly do one whole day without food. That is not what denying yourself is about. Denying yourself is saying, actually, my life is no longer about me. I grew up in a Baptist church. We had our own building we didn't have a pool at the back like we have now. We had one in the floor. The whole purpose of that was that you went down into the pool like a grave. The idea was literally you go down, you die to yourself, you deny it's no longer about me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor in World War II. He said to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way. Keep close to him. I love it, don't you? There's this sort of challenge. I think, can I live like that? Peter, as I told you, was the one who gave Mark lots of the material for this book. And yet what I find fascinating is that when you read the Gospel of Mark next to the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, you realize Peter doesn't come out well. Matthew tells us 
that Peter was the disciple that walked on water. Mark doesn't. You see, Peter's not about boasting about what he did. Matthew tells us that Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. But Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed that Peter would strengthen the other disciples when Jesus had been crucified. But Mark doesn't tell us that. John tells us that Jesus reinstated Peter after he denied him. But Mark doesn't tell us that. You see, Peter only admits his failures as he steps into this story. He says, it's not about me, it's ultimately about him. He denied himself. Why would you want to get wet in front of all these people on a Sunday morning? I guess because ultimately you're saying, I deny myself. It's a physical demonstration of what's happened on the inside. It's not just water here. It's, always, it's almost saying, actually, I'm, it's no longer about me. It's all about you. I would say baptism is the first step of saying, Jesus has not just saved me, but he's now my Lord. I don't just want what I can get from him. I'm going to follow him. And if he says, go through the waters then I'll do it. Self-denial has implications for all of us. You might be sat here this morning and think, I'm all right, I've been baptized. (laughs) Job done. Or you might be thinking, oh golly, maybe this is a challenge for me. All of us need the challenge of self-denial. If you're proud, then you need to turn your back on status and honor. If you're greedy, you need to watch your appetite for wealth. If you're complacent, then you need to battle with the love of ease. If you're faint-hearted, then you need to avoid your love of security. If you are violent, you need to deny your sense of revenge. God refuses to accept a minor role in your life. He requires a controlling place. Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, it says he has this vision of God and where is God sat? On the throne. That is what it means to deny ourselves. Paul writes to the church in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, it's what we've been singing about all morning, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Which leads me on to point two. Take up your cross. If we're really honest, I count myself in this. I'm looking for comfort, enjoyment, and personal satisfaction. Do you know what my biggest regret is? I didn't invest five pounds on bitcoins ten years ago. I'd be worth a fortune, wouldn't I? What we all want is some simple way of making lots of money, don't we? If I could go back in a time machine now, you know what I'm saying? I'd nick the offering today and stick it all on bitcoins. No, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't. But, you know, there's that whole thing. How do we make money quickly? How could we have a pill that means we don't have to give up food, but we still look slim? We really want a shortcut to success. And yet taking up your cross was almost a sense of, man, this is pain. 
They reckon in those days that when people were crucified, which happened throughout society, that the beam across the top, you carried yourself to the place of crucifixion. So when somebody was carrying their cross, it wasn't the shape of the cross, it was probably just the top beam, they would be dragging this rough, splintered beam to a place where they would die. That's how they talk, Jesus talks about following him. There's this sense of sacrifice and purpose. Jim Elliott, he was a missionary. He died in Ecuador in 1956. He said this, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. He understood something of saying, I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow you. And it doesn't matter if I get a long life. It doesn't matter if I get a comfortable life. Actually, I want to take my life for you. I think the challenge is for many of us, we talk about this on Alpha. There's an invite to Alpha if you've never done it on your seats. We have sanitized the cross. People wear it, whether it be jewelry or as a tattoo, We give them as medals to those who've done well in war, the Victoria Cross. Churches are built in the shape of them. We sing about it. But actually, the cross was a symbol of pain. It was pain and it was loss. It was public humiliation. It was naked. It was day and night. It was hot and cold. It was intense. It was shameful. It was drawn out. It was a picture of total sacrifice, holding nothing back. You can never have a crossless Christ. So I don't think you can have a crossless Christian because we are to follow him. There are only two things that Jesus asked us to do. I would have said three. He didn't actually say, give your money. I'll talk about that one another week. He said, there's two things I want you to do. I want you to get baptized, and I want you to break bread. We break bread most Sundays. We're not this morning because we're doing the baptism. Both of those point to the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted the cross to be right at the center of who we are. The difference between these five people that I would call disciples and admirers is this. Jesus does not say, try the cross on for size. He doesn't say this is an optional extra. He doesn't even say, sing about the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. He says, Live it. Now, I'm aware this can be a a stumbling block for so many. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You may even be here this morning and think, Pete, why on earth are you preaching this? Let's go back to the Bitcoins. But this is the Bible, and this is why we baptize folk. Whoever wants to be my disciple, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the story upside down. You see, if we're really honest, we live in a society 
where we get value from how many retweets we get on Twitter, how many hearts we get on Instagram, how many comments we get on Facebook, because what we really want is people to follow us. Even the Pharisees, what they wanted of Jesus was a superman to do good for them. We tend to like the verse about Peter, you're the rock upon which I will build my church. I am named after this guy. I'd like people to say, yeah, you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. We, we love that whole analogy, don't we? Come on, this is it. We're going to... Actually, I wonder if the verse we should take more from Jesus is this. Behind me, Satan. Mm, it's not quite so pleasant, is it? I quite like the sense of building. Jesus' rebuke wasn't rejection to Peter. It was just to make sure that the positioning was right. We are to follow Jesus. He does not follow us. And so he says, actually, behind me, follow me. I have a danger now, and uh, this analogy, I was trying to think of something to try and bring it alive. For all those over 35, this would probably make sense. All those under 35 would think, what's a remote control for a TV? I'm aware that my kids don't watch TV on a TV anymore. They watch it on all other kinds of screens. But the danger for many of us, I think, is that we follow Jesus like I watch TV. I sit on the sofa. I've got the remote. And if something comes on that, I don't know, bores me, I'm no longer titillated by it, I just flick the channel and watch something else. If it's unpleasant, if it's not entertaining me, oh, I'll just watch something else. If an advert comes on, I wonder if I could watch another channel in between. I'm not interested. The danger is that we can end up following Jesus like that. Hey, these songs no longer make me tingle. I think I'll, um, I'll choose something else. Yet when we hear these people that are getting baptized today, the whole reality is that we follow him. Eric Liddell, he was a Scottish gold medalist and missionary, says this, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice is how much you follow after him. Paul writes in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the beautiful challenge of being a Christian. So this whole story that we're reading of Mark, there's this miracle. And some just come out and they want to question him. They want, they want some, hey, if you're really going to do miracles, do them for me. Then there's this other miracle And Peter says, wow, this is who you are. So then Jesus then brings the teaching. Look, if you understand who I am, this is how I want you to live. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after me. Tom Wright, he's an English New Testament scholar, says this. Following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. As Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on, on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would merely mean a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? 
these people getting baptized, they're not just saying, hey, Jesus is now a bolt onto my life. They're actually saying, I die to myself, I take up my cross, and I follow him. Chris Tomlin, he's an American songwriter, says, In the end, you're not living to impress your friends or your relatives or your co-workers. All of life is for Jesus. Well, I know we've got five stories to hear, and I don't want to take any more of their time. I just want to challenge all of us. Where do you fit in this whole story? Have you understood the miracle? you still got good questions, and maybe that's why you need to do the Alpha. Or have you seen the miracle, and you think, I totally understand. I would say, if you've not been baptized, hey, is this something for you? I need to realize, yeah, actually, if I am to follow Jesus, do I call myself a Christian? Then I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow him.